0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Ask Forbes podcast with me, Darren Burton, Head of Housing Consultancy Services. So as you know, we do a wide variety of subjects on this podcast. The last time, if you remember, was development. So we're switching in another direction today to talk about safeguarding. Now, Safeguarding is a massive issue for housing. And the, the importance of, of getting things right in terms of identifying and preventing risk to individuals, families and other members of the community has never been greater. Following on from lockdown, um, the issue of support, isolation, loneliness, increase in domestic abuse reporting and hate crime and everything that goes with it has certainly spiked. The recent Savile Survey, which was uh, rolled out at the Institute of Housing Conference back in early September indicated that there's been a 78% increase in support delivered by registered housing providers and again a lot of that will overlap and link to safeguarding cases. So for the purposes of today's session we really need to see where the housing fits into the equation of keeping vulnerable people safe in our communities and our neighborhoods. Where are the gaps? Where are the barriers? Where can we share best practice? How can we do things differently? and make a difference to, uh, to those around us and also the risk from a compliance and a governance point of view um, if um, we were looking at serious case reviews and who needs to be there, are the training issues that we need to look at and just get a full perspective of where housing sits within this. So I'm delighted to welcome my colleague Keller Bowers who is the head of social care and the abuse claims team at Forbes solicitors. Now, this will also give another dimension to us as well, because I know a lot of frontline housing practitioners will not be familiar with the insurance end of things if a claim has been brought against either housing or a local authority, so where do we go? So Keller will be sharing that advice, expertise, and knowledge uh, with us today. So welcome, Keller.
1: Morning, Darren, how are you? Good, thank you. Good. Uh, Yeah, as Darren says, my name's Keller Bowers. I have been at Forbes for a very long time. Um, I uh, head up the uh, social services and abuse claims team. Um, That title of of our department, as Darren says, it it doesn't sound as though it includes housing providers in it. But as Darren says, over the last, certainly, decade, safeguarding has become a a big issue for housing providers. Uh, Now, as a department and as a team, we deal with... um, usually largely claims relating to children's services um, and safeguarding failures, uh, adult care, uh, Human Rights Act, um, inquests, uh, care quality commission investigations, health and safety executive investigations, as well as public and employer liability claims. Um, but it's interesting, Darren, that you were talking about the, the, the Savile uh, um Inquiry, not not the sub inquiry, but the sub- the one you were talking about from the conference, talking about the increase in the amount of uh, support that housing providers are needed to give in relation to safeguarding. We found that very much in the work that we've done, um, because housing are a direct eye often on what is happening uh, in the home, and recently, as a consequence of COVID, that's become more prevalent because of the closure. Of um, welfare services, day services, uh, the inability of social workers to go out and see children in the home that are part of, um, that are under uh, children in need or, or care uh, proceedings. And housing providers feeding back that information has become absolutely essential. And under the Care Act, obviously, housing providers do have a responsibility for safeguarding around empowering people to being supported and encouraged to maintain their own decisions and to help maintain um, stop housing breaking down and people becoming homeless, as well as the Homeless uh, Reduction Act, putting pressure on housing providers as well. Um, so we, what we try to do as a business and what we try to do across um, our departments is to feed back to housing providers the risks that we're seeing So that they can improve their services, so that they can make appropriate referrals to social care, um, and so that we can ensure better outcomes for people. So, even though my department deals with claims, so things when uh, matters when things have gone wrong, one of our major drivers is to try and feedback that information to housing providers and to social care um, and local authorities to ensure that they're aware of what's gone wrong, how they can improve it, how they can improve their services. And, Aaron, that fits in very well with what you're doing with the Best Practice Partnership Network, I believe.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, that just links in nicely to what you were saying there, Kelly. I've just made made some notes here. And obviously the mantra that uh, does get passed around a lot about safeguarding, overriding, everything, then Mm. yes. But in terms of housing providers who don't traditionally have that sort of, that social care, that almost clinical NHS type background, if you like. Um, Yeah. There's often often a lot of challenges in terms of the practicalities, the barriers, the need to challenge issues with information sharing and kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. escalating cases and thresholds. What advice would you have for housing providers who who sort of encounter those? I think sometimes it can be confidence and training, but any tips from your experience that you could share with us there regarding how housing can can work collaboratively with, with social care colleagues and overcome some of these barriers?
1: Yeah it can be very much a training issue particularly around data protection. Um I think people get very frightened by data protection because of the ICO and uh, the potential for fines that the it's almost a fear that makes everybody clam up not and not say anything at all to the detriment of the people that they're serving and it's not intended to be um that way it's just that people fear What they're allowed to say and getting trouble for saying it. Um, From a training perspective, um, I would say that that is helped very much by creating those links with your local authority. We have a number of clients um, that we act for in the firm who have a real drive on that multi-agency working. They get to know the social care department, particularly the adult social care department, Um by and by getting those relationships going, they can go out on joint welfare visits. So there can be conversations around that information. And by doing those joint welfare visits, you're not as as um restricted in terms of what information you can share because the social worker will have already been out with you. In terms of safeguarding and support, one of the things that we found on on numerous occasions is when There is a joint meeting, for example, and let's say that person doesn't quite uh, reach the intervention level under the Care Act for the welfare support that comes from social care, but they do need support. Sometimes there is some uh, misunderstanding at the housing provider end as to what they're supposed to do with that next. next aren't necessarily picking it up so that joint working that availability of provision one of our clients has a big group multi-agency working group where there are things that they can direct people to welfare services day services um, even um, gyms and um, high street support as well as gp services and it's It's about that collaborative working so that you can direct people. And it is all about the best outcomes. I think some local authority, uh, some social housing providers are really brilliant at this and have really got to grips with it. Although maybe smaller ones may not have the same demographic or the same risks in their area, but it doesn't mean that those things still aren't happening. And if we look at what's happened over covid You could have people in your um, houses who weren't particularly vulnerable before COVID. They had all the support network around them. But because of COVID, they've lost that support network. They've become vulnerable. They've become isolated. And it is the housing providers who will have eyes on that sort of thing, things that are are deteriorating. And the importance of that referral network and knowing who to go to and having those relationships uh, is Fundamentally important to providing people with the best outcomes and also tenancy, um, sustaining tenancies and avoiding people dropping through the the gaps or losing their tenancy because they can't afford it or they become homeless or something happens in their life. So housing providers are absolutely fundamental to um, ensuring that people are provided with the right support and avoid becoming homeless.
0: I think one of the things to come out of... One of the positives, if you like, to come out of the COVID pandemic as the the quicker decision-making, people having to work remotely and get things done. I think that's kind of helped move things along. You know, rather, there hasn't been the ability to have um, a case conference, then another one, then some kind of sub-meeting or whatever. So if someone is believed to be vulnerable and the evidence and the feedback is there, then um, provision is being made. So that's been a real positive. I think one of the challenges that, that I've certainly come across, and I think a number of housing practitioners would probably agree, is you know vulnerability is, is such a, a powerful word at the moment. It's mentioned in everything. But I think housing are encouraged to, uh, when they identify a vulnerability, to almost push up in terms of escalation. And social care colleagues may not see that particular case as hitting a threshold and then there's always the issue with sort of resources and capacity and prioritising as well so um what's what's your take on that kelly what advice can you offer please
1: well I, I agree with you there um i think that is 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 the age-old problem that um housing particularly welfare officers are seeing vulnerabilities um in support it wouldn't reach the threshold for care act support and social care do have limited resources and then it does get pushed back down again and this is what i was saying about um, one of our um, clients having this network where there's not just housing and social care involved with it but there are gp surgeries or we may be able to provide support those day day provision uh, within the, the council area and local, um, local authority provision that's not strictly Um, social care but provides that community support Uh, and unfortunately that does get pushed back down to housing providers because they're on the ground in terms of covid i think it did provide challenges particularly for going out and doing welfare supports and checking on people um, because social care did have real significant resource issues because obviously they've not only got people in housing provision but they've got people in uh, care homes Um, And they've got uh, obviously children, vulnerable children and foster care and residential care, but they've got to deal with as well. Um, I think being able to do those video conferences has helped. And I know we as a business have done a lot of those. We've sort of become IT experts overnight. Um, Not me. But I think think as well, um, one of the um, potential problems with that is being actually able to go out and see whether people are vulnerable and are struggling Um, and again welfare officers are primed to be able to do that even if it's at a distance because they can see if somebody's um, struggling within their house even though they don't have to go in they can have those conversations with somebody face to face at a socially distant but they've been fundamental to making sure that people don't throw through the gaps Um, and safeguarding is a um a relatively new issue for housing providers. Um, the duties remain with the local authority, but it's absolutely essential that housing have those people on the ground who can see and make those referrals. And then I come back again to making sure that that and our work on the best practice network about having those connections and phone somebody you can ring at a local authority and explain your problem. A lot of local authorities have a direct referral service um, that you can ring and that goes into a bank so that there's a quick response to it. Uh, Emergency duty teams are out of hours knowing who to call and who to speak to. Having that information within a housing provider's service is absolutely essential to getting things moving and getting things moving quickly uh, and to avoid people uh, really struggling.
0: Definitely, and I think those links to having a decision-maker contact in social care are invaluable. I was just going to ask you, Kelly, do you think there's still a, a bit of a need for some myth-busting in terms of if housing do get involved um, in a particular case where the resident, the customer, has a lot of um, social care involvement, is there a perception that once they're involved, they're on, And particularly where complaints have been initially received, there's a potential for looking at escalation and eviction and that kind of route, and that sometimes puts people on the back foot when the reality is housing more and more now and thankfully as things have evolved wants to work collaboratively to look at early intervention, to put support in place and really get to the root causes of the issue rather than maybe in days gone by it was a case of complaints and then next thing you know you find yourselves going down possession proceedings and thankfully we've come a long way from that. But I think the myths still in some areas, not all I might add, do exist and, and that can uh, uh, I impact think... on, on the quality of the work.
1: Oh, I think that's absolutely right, and I think that relates to social care as well. Um, You know, most people um, struggle with the intervention of social care to be provided. Some people really want it, but some people find that it's an intrusion in in their life and they don't want it, even if it's to their benefit. And obviously, people who are in um, housing provider um, stock, Will tend to have won't cons- uh, tend to have consent issues. Um, so they have um, the ability to make decisions around what they want in their own life. And I think instead of seeing it as a support and a help and to maintain their tenancy and to get better outcomes for themselves, they can see it as an intervention in their life that they don't want. Um, how you go about changing mindsets on that is a much bigger issue. Um, But working with tenants to provide that support and encouraging them to take advantage of it is absolutely um, something that housing providers should be doing. And obviously they have a responsibility um, and there is the Housing Reduction Act where signing up to that commitment to work together and to provide support and to avoid homelessness before it starts, before it becomes a problem, rather than waiting for somebody to become homeless and go on list and try and find somewhere for them. This is what we're talking about, about ensuring better outcomes for people. Um, but that is a that is a, a perception of, of the general public as to what this support is, how it's going to help me, or whether it's just interfering and I'm going to actually end up going down a, a track where I get a lot more intervention and I, it's, it's going to be a problem for me. We want people to be encouraged To accept this help and to see it as a positive and to see the housing provider as um, another entity that can provide that assistance and ensure a better outcome for them.
0: I think we are seeing a lot more wider acknowledgement of, of the housing role within social care. And I think in terms of sort of innovative approaches, we've noticed over the last couple of years, some housing providers are actually including safeguarding roles within their teams and having um, specialist mental health support workers who have come from, from that background as well so I think that's that's brought a lot of advantage and, and additional knowledge to the teams in terms of getting quicker outcomes and again knowing what to say, when to say and, and understanding the terminology as well a lot better so that's been an asset also we're seeing, and again it's still a bit hit and miss really but I was interested in uh, your views on this of housing providers having a role at the table when it comes to uh, both safeguarding and adult children's boards. I think sometimes it depends on the size of the organisation in that particular locality, but um, what's what's your take on that? I'd be interested to hear your views.
1: Yeah, well, well, housing providers should have a a seat at that table and um, regardless of their size I think it's important that they push for that seat at the table if they're providing that service in the community. Um, not least because they could share information about particular issues, Um, but because they are seeing um, things on the ground, like you say, with mental health, which is a big issue and a big resource issue, and that crosses over, of course, between social care and health Um, and being able to provide that support. I think housing providers having much more specialist uh, provision within their own um, staff, is absolutely essential, and that helps again in knowing who to contact because they know the processes and the procedures, so things don't drop through the gap. In terms of um, safeguarding boards, they are fundamental to driving the the social care policy um, for that particular area. So I think it's absolutely essential that they should be on that table uh, and not be as not be sidelined. Like you said, the, the statutory duties. Largely still sit with the local authorities. So I think sometimes housing providers may feel, well, it's not a statutory responsibility, that's elsewhere. But their involvement on the ground is so, so fundamental to understanding what the demographics are of a particular area, what the potential issues are. Things like county lines, as well, sharing information across borders, um, are absolutely essential. Uh, but you should yeah they should definitely be pushing for a seat at that table if they haven't got it and i don't think being a smaller provider should preclude them from a seat on that table because they may still very well have very important information to share that could influence policy
0: and almost being seen as a a de facto statutory body for want of a better term really so i think a lot of of local authorities do get that and obviously part of the same jigsaw one of the things we are pushing for at the moment which uh, where we have seen some gaps is um the large uh, national housing providers who may only have say a few properties in a particular local authority area making sure that they have access to the safeguarding boards it might not be practical for them to attend every meeting but certainly have have a channel within which to make um, referrals and have their voice heard particularly if yeah. there's, there's any cases of significant note so that that's and again we are seeing quite a bit of progress on that. Um and I think um the the technology that's that's improved around COVID and, and the virtual conferencing has has enabled them to get more involved with that. So that that's been really useful.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. And and let's not pretend that local authorities themselves couldn't be better at um communicating between each other local authorities cover a distinct um, geographical area um, and they're concerned with the community that they are geographically bound to cover but things don't just happen in a specific geographical area the issues are nationwide and local authorities also need to improve on communication between each other so housing providers are no different in that regard either Um, communication about good practice, about what's happening in your area, what you've done, and and publicising that as well. And that, again, is part of this best practice partnership network that you've been working on, that talking about the things that have worked, talking about bringing, you know, one of our clients bringing in a a tenancy, sustaining tenancy department, an entire team just concentrating on making sure people stay within their homes, um, and publicising that and telling other people about it and sharing that information is is extremely helpful and avoids me get um, me, avoids me getting claims off the back of things whether it's via um, arguing that social services haven't done their job or um, if a housing provider gets drawn into an inquest for example they want to be able to say that they've done everything they possibly could to ensure that that. that person but um, housing providers can have very disparate um, stock across a, a wide-ranging area but they need to know what's happening within those areas and that information could be fed back to just better practice.
0: That was a seamless link indirectly Keller when you mentioned inquest I was just about to come on to serious case reviews <laughs> something that you've got a lot of experience and knowledge of obviously fundamentally avoiding serious case reviews that goes without saying but If a housing association, housing provider is is brought into that arena, have you got any um, good practice examples around sort of lessons learnt, any any advice for housing, um, particularly if um, housing providers as a whole or individual officers are brought into that arena for the first time?
1: Yeah, it's inquests and serious case reviews are not nice things. Let's not pretend that they are. They're very difficult for those involved. They're very difficult for the social workers who've had a relationship with a particular person and they'll be very difficult for the um, staff from housing providers who know this person or may know this person or will know of their story. I suppose in terms of um, being able to contribute to that, you want to be able to say that you've done everything you possibly can. One of the things that comes out of series case reviews very often is failure to escalate failure to um chase things up and things falling through the gaps and that equates to series case reviews across the board back to the first one investigations around children's social care that were done back in the 1960s and 70s the same things come up time and time again failure to refer failure to chase it up and escalate and um and um failure to, to support and multi-agency work and to discuss what's going on. Lots of people may know individual things about a person, but the fact that it's not all being brought together is the issue. So they may have had several welfare visits. They may have had several social care visits. They may have had several health care visitors um, see them, but none of those have joined up, which has not led to a full picture. So in terms of practical work on the ground i would say that you need to record everything very clearly about what you're doing if you go out for a welfare visit with someone for example and you're told by social care that it's not going to reach the threshold have a discussion about what happens next because that's not just the end of it this person is still vulnerable and in the community if you feel that that something should have happened escalate it to social care if you're not getting the answers you want escalated again Multidisciplinary working both with social care and health can stop problems happening if they do happen you want to be able to say that you've done everything you possibly can to escalate those and to evidence it and that's often the difficulty when you get to serious case review that um, you'll you require it some things can be have happened quite a long time ago you need to be able to evidence what you've seen what you've said who you've talked to uh, and show best practice this the process itself is not pleasant um because you're talking about somebody who has has died um but in terms of feeding back from that process it is all about escalating referring things escalating things Um, and multidisciplinary working those are the fundamental things that have come out of every inquiry um since you know before the victoria Climbié investigations for example and it comes up time and time again and that comes back to where we were talking about concerns around data protection and gdpr that multidisciplinary working enables you to have those conversations without concerns and then GDPR is concerned about people's personal information. But if you're working in that multidisciplinary environment, you're much more likely to be protected around what you're discussing and what you're talking about for the benefit of that person. And that information isn't going into the public domain. It's being worked on within a social care and housing structure. So the fear of of doing something wrong is diminished, but the information is getting to the right places so things can be done.
0: Great advice there, thanks, Kelly. I think in terms of the, the emphasis on robust audit trails, we can't stress that highly enough. I think making sure with it, you know, everything that's been done and attempted, even if sort of doors have been closed on that particular agency, the evidence, the amount of times that you've tried to, to flag things up in that particular situation, and also something what we've noticed as well over over recent years is um, the link up between internal departments as well. So in housing context. Does the anti-social behaviour team link in with housing management team, or links in with the income team, or links in with the support team and maybe the allocations team as well? And is that information flowing and is it, is it consistent? And does that organisation make sure that there's been no gaps in terms of actions? Has one, has one team gone out and seen something have they reported it to the other teams? Is it all on a, a, a central uh, CRM model and um, and recorded appropriately? And I think those are the things. We look at partnership working externally, but I think internally is, uh, is just as important.
1: I think you're absolutely right there, Darren. And that w- was one of the things that um, actually came out of one of the more recent reports around silo working within local authorities, um, specifically around children, Uh, and grooming and and the information that the local authority had as a a bigger entity and the concern was around silo working because one department was doing one thing and didn't see necessarily see the relevance to the other department where that information would have helped to to start uh, intervening so you're absolutely right as I say I often get cases at the end when things have already gone wrong something bad has already happened but we can't clearly state what you've done or defend your position if we don't have that audit trail to say what you saw what you did what your concerns were how you escalated it who you spoke to why actions weren't taken and if they weren't taken what you did about it or what you thought you could do about it and that's fundamental to being able to answer those questions after the event obviously everybody involved in this area of work would like to prevent those problems from happening in the first place but they do that's just the nature of life. So we need to be able to see that in order to defend your position.
0: Thanks, Keller. I've just got one more question for you, which links on to that. Um, housing providers and, and other agencies for that matter are almost held to account by their individual policies, their safeguarding policies and, and being compliant with that. Um, what recommendations could you give to uh, housing providers for making sure they have, they have a robust and um, easily to interpret uh, safeguarding policy?
1: Well, um, safeguarding policies are absolutely essential. You're right. Um, I think they have to be written, they have to be readily available to the people who are in your housing stock. So they have to be written in um, easily interpretable language. Um, I think that most housing providers will have one. It may be that it's fairly standard. I would suggest that you have your safeguarding policies reviewed to make sure that they include information around referrals and so that everybody within your practice understands their actual personal responsibilities, not just the safeguarding manager, for example, but everybody um, down to the guys who go out and, and uh, fix the um pathways and and the the actual structure of the properties to say it see if they see anything and how they can refer it and how they can bring it back into the business if they think there's an issue um, so I would just try and make sure that your safeguarding policy is all your staff are well trained on it that it's easy accessible to your um, tenants that you make sure that everybody understands that they have a responsibility if they see something to report it and that's the most fundamental thing because once it's within the business, and the, the provider, and it's with the right person, somebody can do something about it.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to want to thank Keller for uh, giving the time to speak to us today, it's been greatly appreciated. And to remind everyone that if you have any other ideas for subject areas for these podcasts, or you want to participate in them, or you know someone from another agency who might be interested in coming on board and, and telling their story, sharing some positive examples highlighting best practice and uh, talking about a subject that may not be too familiar with us because, again, it's all about learning. So we welcome that. You can contact me at the usual email address, darren.burton at forbesolicitors, all one word, dot co dot UK. I'd also like to make you aware of a very interesting webinar that we've got uh, taking place on the 17th of November. That'll be 10 o'clock till quarter to one. And that's going to focus on housing and organised crime. the UK and in the Republic of Ireland. So again, this is something different. We'll be linking with colleagues over in Ireland from local authorities um, and Gardashir Corner and a range of charities as well as people with lived experience. So there's really good lineup for you. The programme will be coming out soon. And uh, if you want any more details, you can also contact us at um, the usual address or look on our website or LinkedIn. So it's been great uh, chatting to you all today. Um, Don't hesitate to get in touch and take care and we'll see you soon. Thank you.